What goes on in this town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Well, the Oscars have come and gone, and for once we have a pretty unassailable Irish film that we can be all be proud of, Room, uh, went on to great Oscar success. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What better way to honour that film than to record this podcast trapped in a basement? But that was a shed. They were in a shed, weren't they? Well, thanks for ruining the joke, anyway. But no, but we've we've had um, we've had the Oscars now, anyway. I'm pretty happy with how they turned out. We really, even with Spotlight winning so much. Well, let's let's get into into that now. We're we're going to have an interview la- later with the producers of Them's the Breaks, a new documentary about gender inequality in the film industry and theatre in the a arts little while. Generally, I... yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll be talking to them in a little bit, and we'll be reviewing all the latest releases. Um, but I suppose yeah, let's talk about the Oscars because I mean, here's the thing I found that I thought. All the acting categories were called perfectly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of... I mean, that, that that's good, just so it's not a thing anymore. Like You so, say so. that. I wouldn't be surprised if it somehow finds new legs. Well, as I was, is he going to get a second Oscar? Like, why does he need a second one now? <sighs> he didn't it's... need the first one. But, I mean, Brie Larson, Mark Rylance, Alicia Vikander, they were all called perfectly. They were all brilliant performances. I'm still sort of um, surprised that Rylance won. Like, I'm really happy he won. He deserved it better, that category, by far. But I'm still sort of surprised they... Made the right call there. Leonardo DiCaprio's performance was a real crying out, give me an Oscar yeah. performance, whereas Mark Rylance's wasn't. It was, mm-hmm. he had such power as an actor. Like, that's going to be a case study for actors in years to come, presumably when they're learning, studying acting. Um, I mean, what's also good is that we have uh, Revenant winning cinematography. We have uh, Mad Max winning a lot of the technical categories, including the, the costume Max design. Yeah, that's a, it surprised me. Yeah, like hair and makeup and costume are both surprising wins that one. It is annoying that they gave it basically every technical award they could and just didn't give a best picture. Yeah, like this is the technically best made film, yes. but it's not the best film. Spotlight is. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I mean, Spotlight's we, fine. we had... Um, a costume designer, but did you see the costume designer and how she was dressed? Like, because she was dressed like an actual person. And no, I saw the controversy, I ignored it. I didn't really care. Inuishu and McCarthy, and they were just all so snobbish. And I was just like, no, no, fair play to her. She's rock and roll. We have um, an Irish film did win, uh-huh. Stutterer, the short film. And it is actually good if you check it out. I, I really loved it. So it was great that we have, uh, once again, a short film winning uh, the Oscar for Best Short Film from Ireland. Uh, Martin McDonough was a previous winner for mm-hmm. Six Shooter. I mean, like, in terms of anything else, though, just, I, I find, like, generally I was happy, but Spotlight did annoy me, because I thought out of all the Best Picture nominees, except Brooklyn, it was, like, the <laughs> dullest, weakest of the films. It's, it, it was so dramatically inert and, like, fine, but I was just, I was so disappointed by it, and it just kind of annoyed me a bit that they gave it the Best Picture thing. I'm surprised it got Best Picture. Uh, did it win Best Screenplay? Yes. Yeah, that's okay. That's acceptable. Except I... it beat Ex Machina and Straight Outta Compton and. Well, yeah. Like... In my ideal world, Ex Machina would have won like everything. So it's, it's, my mind too. Yeah. But um... I, I don't mind getting Best Screenplay because it's a very screenplay heavy movie. I. It is surprising that it got Best Picture. Best Picture. I don't hate that it did. It's a very Oscar movie. It's fine. Much like Birdman before it or whatever else you want to name, it'll be forgotten in six months' time. Who did win the Oscar last year? It was Birdman, yeah. Um, well, we have our own awards coming up, though, from the glamour oh, of the Oscars. Goody. I thought this was cancelled. Uh, the Iftas are back. Ugh. They are back with a vengeance. And, In a smaller um, venue this time, with maybe Ryan Tuberty hosting, perhaps. 
The host is, no, it's in the mansion house, which is where, on the centenary of the Easter Rising, the mm-hmm. first doll met. So it is a big deal. It's there, I, I guess. But, it, but it's a smaller venue than where it used to be. Unsurprisingly, Room is has eight nominations. Uh-huh. It's getting nominations across the board. It really deserves to win, but I mean, will we see what its competition is anyway? Sure, for the lulls. Uh, nominees for Best Picture, Best Film are Room, Sing Street, My Name is Emily, The Survivalist, Viva, and Brooklyn, of course. Brooklyn. I fear it's Brooklyn a might film. win these things. I think they feel like, oh, well, Room got the, the nominations and the wins that it needed to at the BAFTAs and the Oscars. Let's give everything to Brooklyn. It's a lovely Because your mammy liked it. The costumes were lovely. Saoirse Ronan was lovely. Adequate. New York looked lovely. Yeah. Donald Gleeson was weird and moody, but he's a lovely actor. And his dad's Brendan Gleeson and his brother's like, so it's just a lovely film. It's just it's just going to be that. It's just going to be people thought it was lovely. So it'll probably and get here's Saoirse awards. Ronan shitting in a bucket. Give, her, give it every award you can. I'm still amazed that exists. There is a movie where she sharts into a bucket. That's, uh, I mean, um, it's, it's, I mean, that is part of that part. That is part of why she is nominated for best actress in a lead role, alongside Ivana Lynch, Ruth Bradley for Pursuit, which I have seen, Ivana Lynch for My Name Is Emily, that is, Orla Brady for The Price of Desire, Eva Thistle for Swan Song. Um, best actor we have Colin Farrell in The Lobster, Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs, which he was Oscar nominated, Donald Gleeson for Ex Machina. Barry Keown for Mammal, who I have seen in Traders, which we'll be reviewing later. Barry Keown is one to watch. He's a really good young actor. And uh, Martin McCann for The Survivalist. Did everyone just forget that Fassbender was in a Macbeth movie this year? Because I haven't seen Steve Jobs. I don't want to see Steve Jobs. And Macbeth wasn't that great. But like he was good in it, and so was... Uh, Cotillard she was great in it she should have been nominated for an Oscar you know it makes me sad that there is a Macbeth movie with Fassbender and Cotillard and that it's so forgettable like the the, the fact that people would say oh yeah that was out last year last year yeah because that should be better still stick in my mind the score was really good Cotillard was the like amongst the mm-hmm. best version that character I've ever seen but yeah it's just surprising that he's not got a single nomination for it because people like just giving Fassbender nominations why Steve Jobs Anyway, we have uh, best director nominees are Lenny Abramson, Paddy Brahnock, John Carney, John Crowley, and Stephen Fingleton. Those are all pretty familiar names, with possible exception of Stephen Fingleton. It sounds like a lineup for some like crappy pub band you'd see down the country somewhere. Oh no, we got Lenny Abramson, we got Paddy Brahnock. Apologies to our rural viewers. Um, that I was thought, yes, I that was were, offensive to everyone. I, I thought you were going. What you were saying? I thought you were going for a GAA, uh, gonna make some kind of GAA lineup joke, but. Um, with the George Morrison Feature Documentary Award, we have uh, Dr. Sword, Land of the Enlightened, Mom and Me by Ken Wardrop, Older Than Ireland, and The Queen of Ireland, which uh, we actually, one of our guests on this episode, th- mm-hmm. this is our 20th episode, by the way. What a milestone. Vilma Ireland has been and with us for 20 Arbitrary number to jump and celebrate upon. Let- yes. One of our guests is Aoife Kelly, who worked on Queen of Ireland, and that is up for Best Documentary at the IFTAs. International film is a weird category because they picked four films. All of them were best pictured. No, the three of them were best picture nominees at the Oscars: The Revenant, Spotlight, and Mad Max. And the other one is Ex Machina. And they have they international. They actually nominated Mad Max. Yeah, because <sighs> it's so good. No, it and is so good, but it's the if does matter. International actor, and again, I'm looking at the international categories. It's mostly the same as um, the Oscar nominations, and of course, there are all these TV nominations. Then, but we're not TV Ireland, are we? Um, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry to be so dismissive of what makes up so much of our uh, audiovisual industry here. I'm assuming but, um, it's just the fall in Game of Thrones for every dominated category. It is. I can tell you now that the... the oh, sorry, Vikings. For... What else is filmed here? Uh, 
on Klondike Rebellion, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ripper Street. Mm-hmm. Um, no, the, the nominees, everything shot in this country. Yes, the nominees for best drama are a TV drama are on Klondike, Game of Thrones, Penny Dreadful, Rebellion, okay. and Vikings. Yes, yeah, so only thing shot in this country. Uh, pretty much, yeah. I have seen on Klondike, and uh, if you remember my review of it, it was it was good. Some flaws. I but I'd, be, I'd like to see. I'd like to see a second season of it. Uh, it's getting acting nominations. So is. Uh, rebellion <laughs> so is colin farrell for true detective for season two the season everyone hated he uh, was okay in it like actually he was probably the best thing in it so that's fair vince vaughn too anyway mm, let's not yeah. get this again um no he was okay in it but it's just like is, um, uh, yeah so i mean this is, is ava not for anything ava green green ava green is not we have actually you know who is from penny dreadful is hang on let me um, guess let me guess it'll be really terrible um oh no michelle fairley from game of thrones she's nominated for rebellion ruth nega is nominated for a margin a marvel agents of shield this isn't the best supporting actress category (laughs) well she's irish no it's a big tv show they can nominate her i don't hate that show and she's actually pretty good in it but you know Best supporting actress in a... They're literally nominating her for a character where she sat in, like, big, giant human porcupine makeup for ten episodes. That's all she did for the last year in that show. (laughs) And then I think she's dead. I can't remember anymore. That's hilarious. From that description, I'm regretting to... Uh, that I stopped watching it. Oh, um, good. Uh, Liam Cunningham is nominated for Game of Thrones. The, That's actually the a fair character one. he's in two or three. No, he's great in it. But the problem with Game of Thrones is that there are so many mm. actors in it that unless it's like a real standout like Peter Dinklage, it's kind but of. But he, like, he sounds the most. Do you nominate? But the the actress, sporting actress, like Aidan Gillen, Sarah Green from Penny Dreadful. Who is she? One she's of the nominated. Um, yeah, yeah. She was Helen McCrory's underling, and she's uh, alive at the end of season two. She will return in season three. Um, Why was McCrory nominated? She's good. Sorry, she not was, Irish. She, mm-hmm. No, but she was so good in Penny Dreadful. Oh, um, Penny Dreadful is returning here, by the way, just as a side note of news, that they, they will be possibly filming two seasons back-to-back, uh, from what I understand, later this year. So there, there is uh. still lots of uh, work coming into the industry, lots of investment in the Irish film industry. We had a Star Wars film shot here. We have mm-hmm. another Star Wars film shot here. They returned to Skellig Michael last year to shoot what are presumably the first scenes of Episode Eight. They're also going to uh, film... Mark Hallam, I actually talk this time. Maybe um, spoilers, <clears throat> I guess. Who in the world hasn't seen Star Wars? If you at were in- if you were interested at all, you would have seen it by now. So, uh, Star Wars Episode Eight has returned to Ireland, or will return. It's going to film around Kerry and uh, Derry. Actually, it's filming around Balin Head, and apparently, uh, something that was funny was that the. Um, a uh, number of B and Bs and vacant houses in the area have been completely booked out for the month of May. I just love like like Disney to have that kind of money to throw around that they will just make sure that there are no other tourists in the area annoying them that they can just book yeah. out the entire place for a month. That's kind of uh, frightening. They have that much power. That or it's so rural, there's no hotels and they're just gonna they're stuck in B and Bs. So Mark Hamill will be there with with old Mary from the shops living in her house for a few weeks. <laughs> If if anyone uh, dares to, because I know when they were filming in Skellig Michael, the Irish Navy, because they have nothing else to do, they had ships sort of <laughs> protecting the waters around it. But if anyone wants to sort of risk incurring the wrath of our uh, mil- police or possibly military, you can check out Kian Sibel in Kerry or Malin Head in Derry, because apparently these are locations Star Wars is going to be. That's pretty cool. I think it's cool to have part of Star Wars shot here. And I was I was almost wondering if... There was a part of it that looked a bit like Karen to Hill, or it looked it was, but it was CG. Like they yeah. based it in Ireland, so they, they they obviously see that Ireland is a good place to shoot certain environments. So hopefully they'll keep and our back. government will fall on its knees, give them tax breaks to do it. So yeah, I'm sure they're very happy to film here. Now I know you have related casting news, or well, 
shall we say, former casting news uh, through Star Wars. I would also quickly mention the fact that Daisy Ridley is apparently up for the role of Lara Croft, which is great, and I called it months ago. Yes, make that movie. Please make it good. Look, the Angelina Jolie movies are terrible. Objectively awful, awful piece of cinema. I love them dearly. but <laughs> They are fun. They, they're awful, it, yes. But make, awful, a, make a good one. Absolutely make terrible, good but one. fun. It's totally possible to make a good one with that character you know mm-hmm. i mean like there are good movies made about a, a billionaire who dresses up as a rodent to beat up criminals because because he misses mommy and daddy you know it's you can get a good so story soon. about that it was like it's it's a storytelling you know so like i, I think daisy ridley would be good casting what what, what baffles me though a recent piece of news mm-hmm. is that there is going to be a fifth indiana jones movie That's coming out news. on july 19th 2019 it, it's not news in the sense that it's very thin all they've announced is that steven spielberg is producing kathleen kennedy who who is currently doing the star wars movies she's producing again and they're just doing one more, presumably because um, even though as, as disastrous as the fourth Indiana Jones was, uh, Star Wars Force Awakens, Han Solo was great in it. So they were like, people like Harrison Ford again. Maybe this it won't be shite this time. But here's the problem. Harrison Indiana Ford doesn't like being Harrison Ford anymore. And the only reason it worked in Star Wars is because he clearly was like, this is my contract. I'm finally out of it. I finally escaped. Hence, he was actually happy and full of joie de vivre and enjoying himself. I don't see that happening with Indiana Jones unless they're going to kill him off in this too and he can just he can very happily just go home with all of his contracts finally definitely expired. I think when he's the titular character the death would be sort of different it won't be like as as part of a bigger narrative as all these other characters you can follow what would they do if he dies will they get Shia LaBeouf back to reprise his role as (laughs) the character everyone hated? Is Shia LaBeouf going to have his own reconnaissance? Where like he he's gonna stop doing weird stuff and he'll actually start doing really solid work. Is he still trapped in that elevator? He was trapped in an elevator. You didn't hear about this? Okay, <laughs> quick diversion, friends. More news. More news. This was like two weeks ago. He was at some film festival in London or something, and as one of his new, seemingly biannual art pieces or art installations, he just sat in an elevator in. Uh, name a college in England that starts with a G. A college in England. A fam- famous one. Not Greenwich or something. I don't know. Somewhere like that. Greenwich College, I think. Is, maybe that could have been it then. Um, somewhere famous. Uh, he just sat in the elevator uh, for a full 24 hours, or I think it was a few days, just like harassing people as they came in. Is he David Blaine? Or... Uh, this sounds uh, like such a specific... It's stupid. It's I did hear about the thing he did where he was in an art gallery watching each of his films back to back, like in reverse chronology. That one kind of made sense, yeah. I, that that would have been... Yeah, I, kind of, I, w- I would watch Holes with him, this Disney movie he did years ago, just to be it. sitting next to him as he's there. But apparently he lives the whole thing so he's like munching popcorn mm-hmm. watching his own movies without taking a break i just um he, he's he's going through that phase now i suppose james franco has done similar kind of weird arty stuff and yeah, franco has tended to last a few months at most this has been going on for like three years now yeah so um i know we, we just hope that uh he's in a good place kind of mentally like you know so like you know because you, you don't want to see anyone sort of go through uh distress there, there was a story, unfortunately, of that happening recently where, um, as you might be aware, the Wachowski brothers uh, were renamed unofficially the Wachowskis after uh, Larry Wachowski transitioned to uh, Lana Wachowski. I'm not explaining this very well, but the, 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 uh, apparently the other Wachowski is also transgendered and has now come out as Liddy Wachowski. Uh, but the, the reason this happened was because uh, the Daily Mail had contacted Lily, uh, to, like, offering to do a story is how they put it mm. and uh she just like felt really it was a real intrusion into her privacy that they were going to do this so she put out a statement on the internet so turns out both of the wachowskis are transgendered um 
I, I, it's like the Matrix had a huge impact on mm-hmm. filmmaking, and they're okay. Recently, As the Jupiter been, Ascending. They, okay, look, they've been hit and miss, but I didn't hate Jupiter Ascending. They, they've been. It's, it's so far away though from like what the, the how accomplished the Matrix was and and Bound their their first movie was, which I, I suppose re- retrospectively you could say it isn't male gaze, um, but we like it. It's. It's I suppose for trans sort of visibility, this whole issue has come up in the last year. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of it's they they are a source of inspiration in how accomplished they are, but it's just really shitty the circumstances in which Lily had to come yeah. out. I just thought it's kind of it's 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 not the way to go about it. Like if someone is closeted, you know. So I just uh, but I just you know wish them both well. Basically, mm-hmm. they, they they're one of our many devoted listeners, aren't they? Um, they are one as if they're some kind of hive mind collective. <laughs> Don't they, they always work together one. as a team? Um, and uh, yeah, they so share a they were the Wachowski each. brothers. Now they're the Wachowski sisters. We have um, finally some news. Uh, just well, recently, I... sad passing oh, ways yeah. of people. Unless you had another item. Well, of news I just, you want to if you want to go with the sad one, let's get the stupid one out of the way first. In that case, uh, quickly. Uh, speaking of video game adaptations, the Assassin's Creed movie starring our own Michael Fassbender. Yeah, is that how you say it in German? <laughs> I thought it would be Michal. Are you actually asking me? Well, how do you say Fassbender in Irish? Fassbender Hawk. <laughs> I, I made that sound Dutch for some reason. Um, it doesn't matter. I, I really think you're you're overthinking Michael Fassbender's cultural identity here. He I can have a German parent. So. He can speak German, but he is he grew up in Ireland. You know, it's, doesn't it, matter. it's fine. It's irrelevant. Anyway, him, and actually him and Cotty are both in aren't they? I think she's in it too. Assassin's Creed movies. They are. Right. It's the same director as Macbeth, the movie you were you're Is so it actually? I feel, oh, it is. I feel like that. Justin so Cruzel. weird. Yeah, so they're so now weird. making a, a film adaptation of the video game uh, Assassin's Creed, presumably incorporating kind of parkour and stuff into the action. And we, we, we were yeah. talking about this before, about what kind of approach they might go for with it. So, I mean, have you heard more about it? Well, I have, but that's not, a re- that's not relevant to the current point in time. What I want to talk about quickly is anyone who knows Ubisoft, who are the, make, the people that make, make the games and are actually making the film in-house, I think, which is a good sign. They have a bit of a goo on them, to use a, a colloquial expression, for what's known as pre-order culture in the games industry. Uh, I don't know how much all of you know about this, but basically usually the way it works is if you pre-order a video game, you'll get some kind of in-game bonus, some kind of like a costume or extra level, blah, blah, blah. You see, video games are big business now, so the fact that video game producers are going into film production, I mean, that's big news, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I mean, this Ubisoft company, I'm sure they always make kind of responsible decisions for that, you know, are good for consumers. And, uh, you know, they've probably done something very good here. What, what Your level done? of sarcasm is appreciated but unwarranted or unneeded. Anyway, stop. <laughs> Tell the story. <laughs> Trying to. So they've gotten slagged off a lot. If anyone wants to know more, just type into YouTube Jim Sterling Ubisoft or the, word, or the word iconic and you'll find something about this. The point is, we all had a good laugh last week when they announced their pre-order bonuses for the Assassin's Creed movie. You can pre-order your tickets. That's not unheard of. Pre-sale tickets are definitely a thing. Apparently, Batman Superman's pre-sales have already passed at the Avengers, which is kind of awesome. But it's $15 for a regular ticket, and you get a crappy watch or something. $25 for a ticket and, like, the watch and, like, rub-on tattoos. I think it's, like, a $600 one. I forgot what the prize is. But the main one is $1,200. You get your ticket to the film... You'd assume, like, I don't know, lunch at Michael Fassbender. No. Ticket to the film, I think a script, probably the wash on the, the rub-on tattoos, and then, like, a replica crossbow, which I'm assuming his character must at some point use. $1,200 for a single cinema ticket? That's insane. Nerds are a lot richer than I thought. No one will buy that. Mm. Uh, someone's probably already bought that, but it's just... That's absolute insanity. Like, 
even compared to their usual tactics with the video games, this is insane. Like, this sort of game you're paying whatever and you get a $60, like, 20, 40 hour worth product. This is a single movie. You're, you, know, you don't even get to own the movie. You're buying a ticket to the movie. $1,200. What? what if you have a stomach ache and can't go that day? <laughs> you still got a crossbow. <laughs> oh, that's... That's, that that's, that's $1,200 worth. Yeah, it's... Uh, God, that is so odd. But then people will uh, queue up outside Apple stores the day a new iPhone is coming out but and again, stampede in, even though it's available the next day and the day after that. There's no rush. Like, no, there's no rush. The, but again, feel the, this... the product there is a very versatile tool that probably that costs less than the crossbow does. How much is an iPhone? Like $600? It's probably half the price of that crossbow, assuming you don't go to the movie or get any of the other <laughs> perks for this pre-ordered ticket. Duh. If you were... Hang on. So, I'm sorry. We'll move on in a second. If you, <laughs> as a film production company, were making props for your movie, I don't think you'd pay $1,200 per prop. Like, it, I'm sure it didn't cost $1,200. They're jacking up the price for it because there are some nerds who will who will pay it. They, they must... I mean, I guess... I don't know. Ubisoft, I, I think the point was that they have a bad track record of doing this when they were making video games. <laughs> Are they introducing a whole other level of crazy to film studios Somehow now? they've made it worse, yes. It, it, it's quite impressive. I, I commend them and applaud them slightly. I mean, like, another thing about... I mean, video games versus films is that video game companies, they find, they have all sorts of ways to, like, hide the how much uh, the budget of a video game production mm-hmm. was compared to the sales figures and... and and in businesses of all kinds, you see all these sort of shady loopholes and uh, tactics to sort of hide the true state of things. Film is one of the few industries where it's quite clear what the budget is and what the box office is. And it's kind of Ish. has relatively more yeah. transparency than other industries, this, and cer- certainly more than the video game oh, yeah. industry. Okay. But it's still some kind of vagueness to do with you know, marketing versus cost of prints and stuff. But yeah, it's, it, yeah, you're right. It's more visible. But anyway, speaking of weird movies, one last weird movie thing before we move on to the sad news. There's a movie coming out called Sausage Party. So, do you know what this is? Do you know what the basic premise of this is? I, I've heard it described as Inside Out starring Seth Rogen. That's all I know about it. Not far off. It's kind of an R-rated piss take of all those Pixar movies. So, it's it's about a bunch of grocery store items that like live together in the grocery store. It's kind of like Wreck-It <laughs> Wait, Ralph. Wait, it is animated? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, you know, it's animated. Like Think Wreck-It Ralph, but it's a store instead of like a video game arcade. Like They all live yeah. there at night and have their little parties and stuff. And then their ideal... Uh, thing is to get brought home because I think that's like they, that's kind of heaven to them, but then obviously when they get home they get cooked and eaten. So it's it's just this dramatic tonal shift from. As you think, it's I want to show a kid because the, the trailer does the, the great good false footing of this. Like the first half of it looks like a happy go lucky Pixar movie, and then halfway through like a potato gets like a potato with the worst intentionally worst Irish accent you can imagine. Voiced by who? I don't. I it could be literally anyone. It doesn't matter. It's the most potato. Oh, I'm a potato. Kind of accent. I know Sierra Townsend did a robot chicken voice and robot chicken that was deliberately Irished up. Oh, like, it's um, deliberately um, Irished up. So it'd be that's... funny if it was an Irish actor who was just deliberately doing a bad accent just it, to sort of yeah. counteract the criticism of it. Or... I feel the gag of a potato being Irish is funny enough, but just like it being like basically <laughs> it's, it's insensitive, it's... is what it is. Culturally <laughs> insensitive to events that happened 160 years ago. <laughs> well, Selma Hayek playing a taco, so. You know, think of that for what you will. Okay, this is this is giving but, me a kind of. The I'm trailer, not saying it'll be bad. It's just kind. Of, this is already giving me a sense of what kind of movie it is. Oh yeah, like the bit of the trailer I just found really funny, but I was thinking this this won't work for 90 minutes. Is it's the potato getting peeled, and it's like, oh, they're taking my skin off, and just screaming in agony, and then <laughs> a flame scene. But it's comic. yeah, it's it's just insane. And you see, the thing is, it could be at the best end of things, it could be an already Lego movie, and if it's that, 
Excellent. Yep. I don't think it's going to work out that well because it's sort of if anyone's seen Rick and Morty, it's basically the Strawberry Smiggles, also Irish actually, uh, kind of uh, sketch, Smiggles. but for ninety minutes, and I'm not sure that'll work. I still think if you go to Wikipedia and just read the cast list, does the, the both who's in it and who they're playing, it just sounds inherently funny. There's someone called um, Sammy Bagel Jr. Which I think Sammy is, Beagle Jr. is a good pun. And then the rest is just like Michael Sarah as Steve, one of the sausages. Jonah Aww. Hill as Frederick, another of the sausages. It's, it sounds like a... Now, it's a very stoner comedy kind of looking movie. It's from the same people that made Pineapple Express and This Is The End and all that sort of stuff. So take of that what you will. I will definitely see this, but I would recommend you all to watch the trailer and make up your own mind. I, I'm confused as to why uh, Salma Hayek is playing a taco. Isn't a taco like a pre-prepared... It, it, it consists of different kinds of food. She wouldn't uh-huh. just be there with like a sausage or a potato. Those are components of recipes. She's Isn't a, taco a taco shell then, I guess? She's just a taco shell. Yeah, because uh, Kristen, Kristen Wiig is playing, I think, like a burger bun. Because, <laughs> yeah, she's jo- or um, Seth Rogen's love interest. Like, he's a hot dog and she's a hot dog bun. That is way too uh, Freudian. <sighs> yeah. I um, am intrigued by the movie, certainly. What Seth Rogen is doing is uh, he's a visionary taking a creative risk. And uh, we will just have to wait to see whether audiences respond to it or not. Indeed. But speaking of the death of narrative cinema, there were some deaths in cinema this month. In actual cinema, yeah. Um, Ken Adam, uh, production Mm -hmm. designer on Kubrick movies and Bond movies. and Creator of the volcano layer. He's uh, he's gone, and it's just it's uh, this year is just a real kick in the teeth month after month. We're losing so many good people this At year least who, he had was a, old. Who, had, who had a genuine impact on cinema, mm. though. And I, I just think well, what's worth saying about him is that he, uh, he was a Jewish refugee from Europe during mm-hmm. World War II as a child and uh, found refuge in Britain. Might be relevant to stuff happening today, just like that with uh, refugees. Just there, there, there's so much they can contribute just if they are showing a basic bit of humanity. Yeah. So um, rest in peace, Ken Adam. We have our own sort of woe in Ireland, of course, Frank mm-hmm. Kelly. Aside from Father Jack, he he was a really strong actor in lots of films and he was very supportive of Irish short films as well. Do you mm-hmm. remember watching Yu Ming as Anam yes, Dom in that school? Yes, literally came to my mind, right? That's this second. Yeah, and that was great. Not necessarily a good movie, but it's, it's nice I saw a short film there. recently and... Um, and it, but it was about him as a, as a widow and living at home with his cast, and he just he just portrayed loneliness uh, so well. And it was re- it was like I, I, I'm kicking myself, can't remember what it was called. But um, go through his IMDb. He was in so many things, not least of which Taffin, the Pierce Brosnan classic. Uh, he uh, that seminal piece of that. Irish cinema. Yeah. yeah so um, he to was a fair, big though, figure, and he everyone in Father Ted in that movie. Everyone. Everyone. Um, but you know he was. He was also, by all accounts, a real gent. So, um, yeah, no, word the Irish film industry, the the nation in general, mm. is poorer for having lost him. Quite sad. I did like Jim will paint it. There's a Facebook page uh, with all these various paintings, and one of them to commemorate his death was uh, Father Ted in Heaven, and his 18 years of peace have been disturbed by Father <laughs> Jack entering <laughs> heaven. And it's it's just a really sweet image that they've been reunited somehow. Uh, the one I kept seeing going around was a picture someone drew. Oh, it was Dougal sitting on the couch. And Mrs. Doyle, like, with her hand on his shoulder and, like, just, just about looking down, like, there's no one else in the house kind of oh, thing. Stop. That was sad. It was weird that he died that the same really day that Dylan Moore, Dylan Moore, like, Dermot Morgan died. Isn't that really crazy? 18 years later, yeah. The exact same day they both died. That's Don't tell weird. me Dylan Morgan died as well, no, though. Dylan Morgan, like, I think, has probably got enough alcohol and nicotine in his system that it'll shield him from the elements for a while longer. That's the thing. Is it like kind of how David Lynch has been smoking forever and yet he's, he always looks exactly the same decade after oh, decade? I was convinced he was going to die that month, that month because, remember, like Bowie died and 
someone else, was it Rickman died and they're both 69 mm. and Lynch was 69. I was like, oh, please, not Lynch, not Lynch. He's 70 now, so he's okay. He's out, he's out the woods. You know, there's the 27 club for yeah. musicians. There could have been a 69 club, but people wouldn't be able to say that without sniggering. So, um, yep, I did until you said <clears> it right now, but yep, you ruined that one. Is Twin Peaks still on the way? Mm hmm. That is returning That's, to television They're definitely shooting it right now because I've seen Kyle McLaughlin posting stuff on Facebook. So, yeah, they're definitely doing it. Looking forward to that. Should be good, hopefully. Great. Well, I mean, we could have a listen now to our interview with Aoife Kelly and Sarah Barr, producers of Them's the Breaks. You had your team together and you had your topic, but, I mean, how... I, I, I suppose, what is it going to be about? Or is there a story behind the name Them's the Breaks that perhaps uh, gives context to what, what a certain senator might have said and kick-started um, a whole movement inadvertently? Yeah, um, basically, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so um, when, when the Waking the Feminists movement started, prior to that, the centenary came out, um, the centenary programme in the Abbey. And Fiac McConnell, uh, the director of the Abbey, was in charge of that. Um, so he took a Q&A on Twitter and was kind of defending, I suppose, uh, his programming decisions. And at one point said, sometimes plays written by women don't work out, them's the breaks. Uh, which mm. rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. <laughs> and um, it just kind of, I think, really echoed that unconscious bias that's in all of us uh, towards you know writers and women specifically uh but writers of any kind of minority i say minority women aren't a minority but <laughs> within theater um and the arts we are um so basically that i just we kind of thought that those three words just really encapsulated uh what this film is about what the whole movement, the Waking the Feminist movement is about uh it's just about um us not uh, women in general, not being seen um, or heard correctly. I mean, it was just sort of, a, it, it was a very glib of him to say them's the breaks, but he never struck me as like a particularly chauvinistic guy. I think it's just, is it the issue of unconscious bias you were talking about? Like, like how, how does, uh, what do you mean by that, unconscious bias? So it's, uh, I, unconscious bias is it's just basically not being really aware of why you're making the decisions that you're making. Um, just kind of, not examining your privilege, not examining um, why you're doing the same thing that has been done over and over again, um, and not being, not doing it in a. We're not, we're not looking to paint Fiek as a villain, not by any means. Um, a million and one people probably would have programmed that, you know, that way, and have, you know, uh, throughout the history of theatre. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't that he was saying that in an evil, chauvinistic way. He was just n really not seeing um, that what he did was problematic, mm -hmm. and he he really <clears> just <throat> felt that that you know that was the best program he could have made, um, mm -hmm. and he was just defending that choice. Yeah, and just to say, then that weekend, November, Fiek did take to the stage during Wake in the Nation and said, I simply did not check my privilege, and for us, that's where the whole notion of unconscious bias comes from, where maybe males, particularly white males in these positions, just do not maybe check in on their privilege and don't realise that they're actually excluding women or other minorities from their programmes. Um, so I think that's where it all came from, mm -hmm. really. Well, at the risk of asking a kind of way too broad a question and maybe one you can't answer at all, 
it, it, I feel like in the last maybe 10 years, if not more, this whole discussion of women not being represented very well, in this country especially, in the arts especially, has been going around in circles for ages. I'm just wondering, why do you personally both think that Waking the Feminists of... It, it's like a long line of these kind of movements. Like, why is this one kind of finally working out and kind of catching steam? Catching steam is an expression. You know what I mean? Well, I think the reaction to it was incredible, and we've never seen that level of reaction to just one instance in the arts that was one program by one theater but it sparked a whole movement and we haven't seen that happen in the arts and probably not in any other kind of social movement maybe bar marriage equality for a long time um and especially for us as young women who are ambitious to succeed in the arts it's certainly something that's really close to us and falls really close to home um but i think the reason that waking the feminists really did take off <clears throat> i think it's it's very relevant to the time and coming up to 1916 and everyone is finally starting to talk about women of 1916 and I think Ireland has seen a new almost phase of feminism with repeal the eighth and everyone engaging in that conversation and I think women in this country right now are starting to stand up a lot more before because of everything that's going on not just waking the feminists not just repeal the eighth not just women of 1916 but and even you know the new thing that started after Una Mullally hashtag free women because you know there's I think it's four women, one Irish woman yeah. has ever been given the key to Dublin City. So there's a whole lot of things going on in feminism right now that are very relevant to Irish arts. Um, and I do think that that was probably a big instigator of why Waking the Feminist really took on. And it, I guess as well, it got incredible international reaction, mm -hmm. the likes of yeah. Saoirse Ronan. Um, Meryl Streep, Deborah, Deborah Messing. Messing, Nicole Kidman. A lot of like huge international women in, women in film were supporting mm -hmm. as well. I think, yeah, social media has a lot to do with it uh, because across the world you just saw pockets of women kind of speaking up and saying, yeah, this is a problem here too. And then in Hollywood you've got the, all the, even the Sony emails, you know, leaking. People are just becoming more aware of it and mm. more willing to speak about it because social media gives you that platform. And there's, it's just, people will jump on board easier now. It's just, it's easier to have those kind of grassroots movements, I think. Mm. Are you already seeing a policy impact, though? Because, I mean, I suppose the point is one that was... It was raised to me by a female filmmaker I was talking to recently. I won't name her, but she was saying that, like, with all these public events and stuff, that it's, it seems to be an Irish thing that people love to talk about prob problems. They love to go to these events and talk about them or get on social media and talk about them. Um, have you been seeing a change of attitude or, like, policy changes, like, from the movement? And, like, is there a, a shift you're already starting to see in the making of this documentary? or um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I, I do think absolutely in the arts in general, I mean, after Waking the Feminist happened and Waking the Nation, the film board released their six-point plan on getting to a 50-50 gender balance. And I think that was a huge step in the arts. <clears throat> at, the, at the moment, isn't this stat something like 80-20 skewed towards men? I, mm. I heard it was, it was that in... It's that 20% <clears throat> of the films financed by the film board are written or directed by women and the rest is guys. Um, well, no, I actually have here in 2010, 2015, looking at the last five years of Irish feature films that have been funded, 21% were female writers and only 18% were female directors. Now, in contrast to that, 56% are producers. But, I mean, looking at the talent involved for the writers, directors, yeah, 18 to 21% were female written or directing. Um, and so the film board are really looking to close that gap and make it more 50-50 for writers and directors as well. So, I mean, that's an example of, yeah, how policies have already started to change. Um, and just to go back to, you know, what that female filmmaker was saying, it's something that Liam Bell keeps talking about every time, and it's 
these movements need to come offline. They need to get around conversations. They need to get in front of an audience from a podium or whatever it is and not just be an online movement because if it stays online, we're not going to see it reflected in our programme and in who's getting financed. It does need to come around the table um, and even just engage with, with your friends and your peers and your family. Um, and again, using marriage referendum as a reference for that, we know that social movements have so much more impact when it comes offline. And, and it definitely did, you know, the great thing with Waking the Feminist, I think the the reason it is still being talked about months later is because it very quickly moved offline. So straight away, it moved to the Abbey stage, which was just so amazing that within a week that all these women took to the stage and had their voices heard. <coughs> and then within the next few months, Leanne was meeting with, you know, different theatre companies around the country and having discussions on how they could put some things in place to make sure that this doesn't happen again and that things start evolving to a more equal place. So I do think that the policies, I mean, it's slow to change because these things have to be put in place. People's attitudes have to be changed and there's stuff like that to overcome. But I do think that people are not going to sit back and accept it. <clears throat> so if a programme like this you know, came about next year, it's just not going to be tolerated. So they have to, they're kind of backed into a corner in a way that they have to make a change. Mm. Um, there's so many women that are working in the arts that just aren't going to put up with it. Mm. Um, so I do think that that is happening. Um, just, it'll depend, I don't know how long it'll take. That's, I suppose that's the difference. It's just how long it's going to take to actually see these changes really manifest on mm. the stage or in film. But I, I do think it's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, where can people fund the movie and until when? <laughs> it's on funded.ie. So you just search. It's on the landing page. Uh, luckily, we're on the front page. It's them's the breaks. Um, so you can fund it there. It's amazing perks. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, uh, the, so far the response has been amazing. We've hit our 30% mark, you know, within a week, uh, which is really exciting. Um so yeah, I think people are just really enthusiastic about it and just mm. want to see the film. So um, it's actually funny. We have a little uh, Facebook group for everyone that's involved in making the documentary. <laughs> I hope she doesn't mind me telling this story, but I loved it. Sarah Carker, our director, uh, left a little comment the other day, just being like, "And our funders list is turning into a who's who of feminism in Ireland," <laughs> which was so true. And for me, it was so encouraging to see that. Women are funding other women. Like, just to give you an example, today I looked at the stats. So 46 females versus 26 males have funded. I was curious just to mm. see how many um, had funded from, from females, I guess. Um, but I love that. It has turned into, you know, so many yeah. big Irish feminists are really supporting it. A lot of women that are really well known in the arts are, are supporting it and getting behind it and really see the need for this type of, not only this type of documentary, but this type of conversation on screen mm. as well. Um, and I think people are really seeing that there is a need for this, which is amazing. And yeah. people have been doing what they can to share it. Like, obviously throwing in a little tenor goes a long way, but sharing it on your Twitter and Facebook is just, just, just as important. As far, yeah. yeah. I suppose one final question would be for any listeners who are working in film or theatre, uh, what could they do to help gender equality in the industry? I think talk about it. Uh, don't accept what's there right now. I think just really question it. Um, I think that's the most important thing. I think that's what Leanne Bell did. I think that's what all the women that day on Twitter did. They said, no, that that's not good enough. Um, <laughs> and once everyone stands up and says that, and men as well to kind of say, no, you know what, that's not fair. Um, 
I think that's that's the most important thing and it's it doesn't cost anything to do uh, just a little bit of time mm. um, and just to be willing to kind of put your hand up and say no that's not okay um, mm. and that's the same with any kind of you know equality movement it's all the same it's just you know everyone getting a fair shot at it mm. um, so I think the most important thing is that you just get behind whoever the first person is to kind of say oh I don't think that's okay it's that there's you know follow through that there's mm. other people backing that person up and that's why mm. waking the feminist you know worked because everyone kind of fell and, into line you know and they also took a bit of a risk I mean mm. getting up on the Abbey Theatre and saying hey I totally disagree with what you're doing that is risky really That's risky and such a putting your career yeah. jeopardy somewhat and I have just so much admiration for all the women mm-hmm. that did that um, but just to add to that I think for anyone that's you know, wants to start a career, especially if you're female and want to start a career in the arts or in theatre, I would say as well make it your prerogative to look at the facts and look at the figures and look at the statistics because I've only recently came across some of the statistics and some of them have absolutely floored me. Like I did not know only four Irish female directors have made more than three feature films. Mm -hmm. I find that... Like, my jaw dropped yeah. when I heard that. I was it... just about to jump in with that, because, uh, like, that was one that occurred to me. That that surprised me. Like, it... I knew the situation was bad, but, I mean, that bad That absolutely bad is... floored me. And I do think part of it, like like Sarah said, don't be afraid to stand up. Get your righteous anger up. I'm furious about mm-hmm. that. So I'm channeling into at... this documentary. But at the same time, not to be disheartened by it. Mm-hmm. Because it's very easy to just go, oh, I can't do that. Let me just do this, you know, instead you know it is it is difficult in an industry like this that you know does seem to have walls up um I mean it's difficult anyway but I think it's just so important to not let that you know stop you from pursuing the the career that you want as well Um, if anything drive you if anything it should encourage more women to go into this industry and kind of say you know what I'm going to prove it wrong um that's what drives me anyway is that you know screw that (laughs) I'm gonna make it work um, and that's, Absolutely. you know, I think that's the most important thing is just to stay positive about it. Let's hope so, yeah. Um, Sarah Barr and Dave Kelly, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, the project is Them's the Breaks on Funded.ie and it's the crowdfunding is opening until what date? The 4th of April. Get your money and support this project. <laughs> it's a good project. Uh, thanks for joining thank us. Thank you so thanks. much. That's great. Yeah, so that was a great discussion. Uh, go support their project. It sounds like it, I mean, it is about something very mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. and... Um, I think we should get into reviews then. Uh, what better way to start than with a movie directed by two men? Uh, about the film industry. About the film industry, no less. The Coen brothers' uh, Hail Caesar was out this month, and it's been dividing opinion. Uh, what's your opinion, Richard? Uh, I quite enjoyed it, I have to say. Now, I, I, don't, I think the closest comparison point of this movie is Burn After Reading. Which I know you didn't like. I always That's my quite, least favorite yeah. Coen Brothers film. I really I hated Burn After Reading. That was the first one reading. I saw. I really think that was the first one I ever saw. I mm. quite like that movie. Like it is, it's not. Yeah, it is, it is probably their weakest. No, sorry. I mean, that's like intolerable cruelty is their weakest. That, that's like you know your first Kubrick movie is Eyes Wide Shut. Like that's a really it's really starting off on a wrong foot. It's like, yeah, no, it is. Well, I don't think so because I enjoyed it and I think it gives a good sense of their their sense of humor, if not necessarily their filmmaking skill. But I, I think the trailers of this made it look like Grand Budapest Hotel. This year, I thought. And the fifth day, see, in Hollywood, see? Yeah, and I don't think it's quite that good. No, it's definitely not that good. But, I mean... Okay, because what I keep hearing is some people saying they didn't laugh at all. I know, like, for example, Mark Kermode, they laughed the whole way through it. Would it were so simple? 
I loved the scene. It's probably in the trailer. It, it but it's, is. It's, it's Ralph Fiennes. I'm not calling him Rafe. I don't care how posh he is. Um, it, it's him and Alden Ehrenreich, yeah. and it's um, just rehearsing a scene. Would it were so simple? And he can't say it because he's a southerner. So I just, I don't know. I was, I was laughing quite a lot in that scene. Yeah. But I could also see with different actors or different direction, that scene could fall really flat. Or maybe it did for some people. Well, I thought that scene, I liked it. I thought the joke went on too long. But the payoff for it later on <laughs> makes it retroactively <laughs> funny, I think. But I think that's a lot of the problem with the movie. That I think a lot of it is funny, but in sort of a thinking about it after kind of way or in a not necessarily constructive way. Like, I thought the image of, I almost said Nazi, uh, communist... Sub or... Channing Tatum, like, the the quiffed blonde hair on the boat holding the dog. That was just so funny as a visual. But it wasn't really a joke. It was just this weird nonsense tonal shift. It was so weird. It's, I mean, it's typical of Coen Brothers... You mentioned Jonah Hill, actually. I liked how Jonah Hill had... had was he on SNL or something? But he had some joke about saying... And also, I've, I've starred in uh, Hail Caesar, the mm-hmm. trailer, because he's, cause he's only in one scene in the movie and they make a bigger deal out of he him. Gets he gets billed really highly in the credits as well, which is very strange. Um, l- l- Like, someone who's billed... Ho- who's actually more important part of the movie than his character was uh, a, a cowboy star played by Alden Ehrenreich. He was the best thing in that movie. He, he was fantastic. He's a really good up-and-comer. Like, he was... A few years ago, he was in a movie Francis Ford Coppola directed called Tetro, and he looked and sounded so much like a lot young Leonardo DiCaprio mm. in it. And um, I was wondering whether he'd been in more stuff. He's been in this. He was really strong, really... He, he just got that sort of... that southerner kind of uh yes ma'am sort of like uh very polite and introverted sort of character down he was really likable too i thought yes uh, which was surprising in a movie because cones usually go in for a lot of quite nihilistic characters you you hate everybody really ralph fines was um just so preposterously posh tilda swinton playing twin journalists with very similar uh jobs saying i have 90 million readers depending on me the other one shows up i have 20 million readers depending Mm -hmm. on me and i'm not going to like uh, she she was still the scenes she was in um I mean, I suppose the, the the main, the kind of main character was uh, Josh Brolin as Very the head good. of physical production at Capital Pictures, a fictitious film studio who are producing Hail Caesar, a, 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 a historical film. A Tale of film, the Christ. A Tale of the Christ uh, about the Roman Empire and... Divine vision yet to be shot. Yeah, it's it, 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 because it's, it's set in <laughs> the round time of Jesus' crucifixion. But it's, 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 <clears throat> it was so good at parodying not just those kind of biblical epics, of which, of course, Ben-Hur is the obvious example, yeah. but... Um, the uh, sort of sailor musical Channing Tatum is in the the swimming coordinate synchronized swimming musical Scarlett Johansson is in. Um, it, it captured the stately drama. Uh, Lawrence Lawrence is that Ralph yes, Fiennes character's Lawrence, name? Yes, Lawrence. Yes. Uh, like it it got so much that the hammy acting George Clooney like deliberately hammy for the scenes he does uh, in the movie. He ends up being kidnapped, and the trailers leave it mysterious as to why he's been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Is it too much of a spoiler to say what the nature of it is? Because I found I it quite I think I kind of already ruined it by saying with Chinese hate. It's a con- yeah, yeah, because it turns out he's he's kidnapped by communists who want to. Uh, weirdly, since we reviewed Trumbo last month, that's why I have my notes. They like, want it's to the same movie in some ways. It's it's very weird. It is not like the same not, movie. No, but like the subject matter wise, like the fact that they both come out so close together. And they're both so heavily dealing with that subject matter is really strange. This one goes so much more into it, though, with them yeah. explaining how they want him to be part of their team trying to slip pro-communist messages into Hollywood cinema. And there's a great scene then where George Clooney is like, 
explaining communism to Josh Brolin. Mm. He's just like, even what we're doing, it's all like bread and circuses for the masses. We're just distracting people. I'm just like, this is George Clooney, one of the biggest Hollywood stars on the planet, like uh, talking about Hollywood and Marxism. And then Josh Brolin just sort of slaps him and says, stop it, snap out of it. You're going to go there and you're going to do that scene. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay, Josh Brolin, I'm sorry. Um, That was the weird thing about it. Like the... the, I kind of enjoyed that they flipped all the ideology at the end, the way that the communists were shown to be these kind of money-grabbing people with these very clear leaders, whereas Brolin's final speech gives us a whole notion of film as a collaboration being this almost communist-esque, <laughs> or communism-esque kind of structure. It's, it's funny, it's very Cohen-esque to do that, but I did enjoy it. I think I probably peaked a bit early with the laughter. I think that initial scene with the the rabbi, the priests, all the, the religious leaders discussing... <laughs> That sounds like such a, it's a, a, a hacky setup. It's like, yeah, it but does. It's, no, it's a priest, rabbi, a Protestant minister, and an Orthodox minister discussing representations of Christ. Like that yeah. was the funniest thing in the movie. I laughed so hard. And that was tired dialogue. That was well written. I mean, the problem, and I'm not sure if it is a problem. I guess the, the reason I find it hard to judge Coen Brothers movies is that they're all over the place in terms of thematically what they deal with, in terms of subplots that are dropped and come back. Scarlett Johansson is in it for a bit, then she's mm. not in it at all, then she shows up again tiny while and you kind of feel like with all these different strands they have going if in in like proper farce writing if they all these plots somehow converged towards the end where you you understand what's going on with each character so for some reason at the climax they're all sort of interacting with each other that's what i thought the movie was building towards and because it doesn't i i guess it does feel a bit flat it it, it just kind of i like I'm not sure whether it's that's because that's what the Coen brothers do that they they make movies that, yeah. that sort of take on a lot and even with, like with Burn After Reading the way J.K. Simmons just ends the movie by saying well at least we learned um, I don't know whatever whatever there is to learn from all this it's yeah. just kind of like acknowledging that the the story was a bit pointless See, it can I don't still be that. fun yeah. but I'm just not sure then. What I'm trying to say is I don't know whether they're bad writers or if they just have a very specific style of writing that is intentional. Like I think it's the latter because I know like a serious... Barton Fink to a point did this too to me. I think Barton... or sorry. A Serious Man quite annoyed me because the way that... Have you seen that one? No. The way it ends, it, there's a very sudden tonal shift right at the end. It was kind of implication of a slightly bigger story and it just ends and it's a complete downer compared to what came before, which I kind of like on one level, but also it feels narratively unsatisfying. I feared this was going to go the same way because it has, it has that sudden bit in the middle where it gets really serious and the atom bomb gets mentioned and the score gets really brooding. It's like, oh, well, it's getting serious for a second and then suddenly it's gone. Never mentioned again. Fine. Yeah. And I don't mind that so much, but I know what you mean. It can feel weird. It can feel lopsided. I had a bigger problem with the way they shot the fake movies. I thought if they're going to make this set in a period uh, setting... Shouldn't we have seen, you know, the, the, the sailor dancing bit or the Scarlett Hansen fish swimming bit in like kind of bad stock footage or kind of like a representative, representative of stock of that era kind of thing? They, they shouldn't they look do, kind of green from or, time to time. They do do yeah, that. By and large, it all looked like really crisp and clean. I thought it looked really strange. I also wasn't a big fan of the fact that they just did those bits. Like... There they went no, on for too long. Yeah, the dancing bit was very impressive, like the single shot dance sequence. Like, that's very technically impressive. I still don't care about it because I don't care about dance scenes in movies. It was fine. Similarly, the, the aquatic bit, very impressive visually, but there was no real need for it to go on the whole way, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely an, an uneven movie. It's not their best. It's not their worst. I enjoyed it a lot. I'll watch it again, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, it's it's pretty okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a solid 6, 7 <laughs> out of 10.
Yeah. If we're doing numbers arbitrarily, six all of out a of ten, let's say. Uh, we we haven't done that so far in this podcast because nope. we find complex opinions hard to express numerically. But I know. Do you want to carry on doing that for next film or? <laughs> this is not the next film. What so is the next, the next film? film uh, is a I don't know what, a Irish number called the Truth Commissioner. Which I didn't want to watch. Jonathan told me to watch. I was like, fine, I'll watch it. Because we're the Film Ireland podcast. We, we Presumably, if we deal with film industry in relation to Ireland... Anyway, sorry, this was one that was out in the cinema and then was shown on BBC yeah, shortly after. But the after. reason we watched it, because it was on BBC the other night. And it starred... Well, I mean, a big reason I watched it was the main actor is Roger Allam, who you might know as... It was who? If, Roger Allam. If you remember Christopher Hitchens. He, this is an actor, this is, uh, you see, in-jokes don't work if it's to a, if, if you're referencing a conversation we had off no, mic. I, I know, I know. About how Roger Allen, if you remember the late journalist Christopher Hitchens, the atheist who was uh, a shitstorer, he, he looked and sounded a lot like this actor. You might have seen this actor, Roger Allen, as the evil English guy in When the Shakes the Barley. He was the evil English guy in V for Vendetta. He was the evil English guy in Speed Racer. He gets typecast a fair bit, but, um... This is kind of the first time I've seen him sort of in a lead role, and he mm, plays yeah. a, a British diplomat who has experience trying to oversee reconciliation processes around the world. Uh, there was an actual historical uh, truth and reconciliation process in South Africa after apartheid, where basically if, if people from either side of the conflict had killed someone, they would uh, talk about it in public and apologize to the families of the people they'd killed. So the premise of this movie is that this is happening in Northern Ireland in an alternate uh, timeline where the Prime Minister of the UK is a woman who does not um, do frat initiation ceremonies with pig's heads. And um, I okay. enjoyed this. Yeah, I think it was fine. Uh, it was. It felt like a very well-produced TV movie. I think he was great in it to the point that we both, I know, lashed onto certain lines of dialogue that were a bit hokey, but that he basically sold. He has the dry sort of British wish that yes. he, he can sell lines Quite like... Quite Mark Gatesy um, and Sherlock-esque, kind of that sort of uh, acting. Spies are not nice people. Um, sorry, we're looking through these files. Some of them are 30 years old. Hardly the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> he's just like, he's just, it's kind of... I mean, I, I don't know. He, he, he sells anyway, whatever that dialogue is. Mm. It's great. There's... Um, Sean McGinley plays a Sinn Féin minister who could be implicated in a murder, basically. So uh, I guess the whole theme did, did of the movie... Did you get the, the subtle analogy they're going for there? Uh, it wasn't clear to me, I know, until the bit when they play the tape and he's very clearly doing a bad um, Jerry Adams impression. He, he was like, oh God, did you remember the scene where um, he's getting fitted for a wedding and his son brings him outside and he's wearing a balaclava and he's going, oh, he stays true to his roots. And I was just like, no, that was a bad Northern Irish accent. But, but basically there's just kind of, there were certain scenes like that where people wouldn't do I that. that like, if his dad was involved in the IRA, he wouldn't joke about wearing a balaclava. <laughs> <laughs> if um, the da strange daughter of Roger Allen's character, Henry Stanfield, delightfully British name, um, she moved to Northern Ireland to uh, be away from her father. And she says something like, because um, they had a falling out, but she says something like, I never thought you'd come to Northern Ireland. I'm just like, your dad is a diplomat who goes around the world working in conflict resolution and reconciliation. You thought he would like never come to Northern Ireland? Like, what? It's, like it's like, there are certain kind of contrivances in it where it kind of distracts you. But on the whole, it, I mean... I thought it was like pretty well shot. It was kind of it does it a thing. Quite it was nice, just like yeah. the camera was always moving, as far as I could tell. I know mm. Guillermo del Toro does that on on most of his movies. That even if it's just a little bit, it just it just gives it it 
it just saves it from the pitfalls so many Irish movies have where the camera is static and locked off mm. and it just looks really flat and how it's shot. Um, you know, the opening forest chase bit was quite good looking and also there's a really nice shot of Stormont near the beginning of like them driving towards it. Yeah, they filmed really on location nice. in Stormont, yeah. Pretty good. I do think it got a bit spotlighty in places for me in the sense that they kept using the word true commissioner in dialogue like all <laughs> yeah. of the time. And also there's a twist about, I don't know, two thirds of the way through, which I didn't fully grasp, wasn't paying attention to it. But the thing that annoyed me was the fact that there was a it, there was a chessboard in the background behind this character who had betrayed the main character. Oh, subtle visual tell- storytelling, you hack frauds. Well, I mean, you're a film critic. You have a master's in film study. Maybe to a general audience, they're not going to notice stuff like that. I still but I think like that, that level of sort of symbolism, symbolism of like putting chess match chessboards no in the backgrounds of scenes during the twist reveal. Like that's just. Stupid. I suppose. I mean. No, but I mean, on the whole, I mean, this was pretty solidly acted. A lot of a lot of faces from Game of Thrones show mm-hmm. up because um, it is shot in Northern Ireland, yeah. after all. Uh, there was an actor, uh, Barry Ward, who I refer to as Good Aidan Gillen, because he's bit, he looks a bit like Aidan Gillen, <laughs> know, yeah. but he's a slightly he's a stronger actor than him, and he plays um, and he can still do the in the IRA too, and uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. It was kind of it, it was nice to see something different that would take on the issue, but it's still a kind of like pretty competent political drama. This whole theme that running through it, though, of truth and, okay, if they, the, the truth in and of itself is a good thing, but will it bring up some inconvenient implications for the political peace process? Uh, it ends up with a conclusion that's a bit muddled because it's mm. kind of, on the one hand, like the actual stuff that happens is kind of dark because it is reflecting how, no, the truth isn't going to get out. There's always going to be some compromise because this is what happens with big uh, bureaucratic democracies. But the ed, the kind of last scene is still really saccharine and sweet in its tone. It's about how the truth will help us move on from the past. And it's just kind of like, no, no, do one or the other. Either have the ending where he succeeds in getting the truth out because he just committed to his idealism and then have the nice sweet ending or have it be that the truth was compromised so the truth commissioner didn't do his job. So it's like a, a bit of a downer ending. You know, I just... It, it's kind of... There might have been... the. Just the landing. I wasn't sure whether it was cut down slightly for TV or not, but... Oh, um, maybe, maybe. I mean, no, no, but on the whole, I mean, we have that Irish film. We have uh, another one that's out in the cinemas at the moment called Traders. I think it's also on DVD. I think I've seen it in shops. I assume it was one of simultaneous release. Is it on VOD as well, probably? I'd imagine it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I imagine it is. A lot of, especially, there's a website called Volta.ie where you yeah. can rent a lot of uh, movies in general, but often they will release an Irish movie at the same time as well. So I saw Traders. Um... I, I like the idea of it because it's uh, it's commenting on the financial crisis by having characters who are in a precarious job situation. They've lost all their or most of their savings. The The premise of traders is that people get together, convert all their savings and assets into cash. They will meet at, at a remote location and they will fight to the death. The winner buries the loser and keeps the loser's money. So you can kind of double your uh, money and you can if you keep doing this, though, you build up a reputation Keep getting more money. This is like in terms of like okay. world building. There's I didn't see big it. opportunity for world building. Like, I have a question because when I saw the setup for this, I think we talked about this last time. I I kind of felt this has distinct purge like qualities in my mind. Like just immediately in that great idea, really solid premise. Love it. Does the film completely squander that premise? Does it use it for like ten minutes max of being good and then just makes its own film aside from that? Sorry, do you mean as in kind of abandons the premise and is now about something else? In the way that, you know, The Purge had this great idea for social commentary, which the sequel have done really well. But the first one was just like, here's this great idea for social commentary. And now it's a very, like, bog standard home invasion movie. I, uh, is there, uh, it's kind of a happy medium 
okay, between the two good, where it's kind of it doesn't completely squander the premise at the same time I can't help getting that feeling that I feel with a lot of Irish movies where this could have been better mm-hmm. um, there are a couple of like very noticeable flaws uh, main actor Killian Scott or Irish Joseph Gordon-Levitt as I call him he um, has this voiceover which you could, is is really badly written and shouldn't have been there or if it was going to be there it should have been better like you have American Psycho like, like as a point of reference it's a thematically similar film and the voiceover in that movie is really good although yeah. it was based on a pre-existing book what happens here is that it, like it starts off with him saying like I worked in investment trading don't worry I won't bore you with the details but it's just like, and you can just hear his voice going like I cannot make this sound natural it's the Harrison Ford thing, thing of like like first Wolf of Wall Street then oh, Street Wolf Big Short Big Short that is a financial regulations you don't care about that audience moving on well, I suppose, I mean, technically, people fighting to each other to the death might be slightly more interesting, but I think it's just, just the way the... Like, his performance, it's really solid, the scenes where he's acting with other people, but just the reading of the voiceover just comes across so flatly, and I think it, you can you can hear this in actors' voices when they're reading stuff they know doesn't sound right, mm-hmm. and it's like the Harrison Ford thing when he said to George Lucas, you can write this shit, but you can't say it. Um... That's kind of a problem. J- J- John Bradley is in this. He's uh, Samwell on Game of Thrones. Uh, John Snow's um, overweight friend. He he kind of uh, he's playing pretty friend. much. But <laughs> people might think, well, which friend? Because Game of Thrones has so many friends. characters. Yeah, John Snow has no friends. John Snow. John Bradley is the kind of the upbeat, plucky one. He plays. Okay, for a while you're worried watching this because he plays pretty much the same character yeah. in that he's all bumbling and everything and he's kind of... And the accent... I just find the Northern English accent delightful. I mean, just the way he says, lung cancer or, or, or something. <laughs> it's just there were certain points of it where I was laughing and there was no Ooh, reason to. Okay. And it's just my own... It was just my own childishness. Um, what really makes me think... Makes me hope that John Bradley will get like better roles after this is that there are scenes in the movie then where he'd be like in a in a fight scene with someone and then he has so much menace in his eyes and he gets like really psychotic like these little brief moments where he's like scary and then the rest of the time he's like oh uh, that was weird you know he's like he's kind of bumbling the whole time it's a nice bit of misdirection for these scenes where he gets really intense so he was good there was uh barry Keown, this young actor in it he's Plays like a teenager who is surprisingly good at killing people, so he starts doing it. Um, no, no, but he's an actor to watch out for. He's also in an Irish movie coming out soon called Mammal, directed by Rebecca Daly. Um, we do, we do love her work. Sleep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we had... Um, unfortunately, this movie, it kind of when it, when it comes to representation of women, it, it was like there's a romantic subplot which doesn't really go anywhere, and there could have been so much more to the character. It was, it was just a real shame... That they didn't. Uh, the, the, there, there is a nice twist, which I, I, I suppose I'll have to explain. I, I, I hesitate to because it kind of ruins a surprise. But one of the traders, they meet up on the internet and then they meet at a pub. And then when one of them turns out to be a woman, there's a whole scene of like, no, I'm not going to fight a woman, and, yeah. and she's like, why the hell not? And it's just like, and and then they end up doing something unexpected with it. So okay. it's kind of so there was like one good female character that they didn't make enough of and then there were female characters who there was a lot of but they didn't really do much with so um it, it kind of felt a bit uneven there and then sort of with, with the way the fight scenes were staged it was uh the shaky cam which i hate so much it's just like because you ruin all the effort people put into design and choreography and everything if you're if you're shaking the camera so much to 
quote unquote, give it energy. But if you can't see the action anymore, it's just really distracting. And I was, I was just watching it saying, hold the camera still. It's like, cause I, I, it, it, there was still moments in there though, where it was like the fight scenes were properly intense though. And, um, like, I think on the whole, it was pretty good, but it's probably not the best execution mm -hmm. of it it could have been. And um, So, Truth Commissioner or this, which is better? Maybe Truth Commissioner is more consistently good, but that's probably because they were realistic yeah. about their ambition okay. of, like... That this is a political drama TV movie. It's been done before. We, like we, we kind of, they. I think they had a better idea of what they were going for. Whereas, you know, I've seen like you know, the publicity for this movie is saying like Fight Club with a dark Irish twist, and it's kind of like it, it. It's it's nowhere near as good as Fight Club, and I don't think there's any but, reason. But but there's men fighting in it in a club like environment. Therefore, but it's this Fight Club. could have been in the same league as, or not, I mean, not quite the same league as it, but it could have been like. Kind of remembered as a cult film. I'm not sure if it will though, because I know it was just a bit uneven in parts. But I mean, it's a great premise. Maybe they will buy the rights to an American remake and have Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. I don't know. Maybe oh, that'll no. get a second life. That would even. So Killian that would Scott, make the voiceover even worse somehow. That'd Killian even Scott just reminds me of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, you would you would drop the voiceover definitely because the voiceover is just the main problem. E even if that voiceover wasn't there, and if they sort of tightened up the edit a bit, um, hmm. yeah, it probably would have come across as a stronger movie. But uh, I think it is worth checking out. I think it has really good moments and I love how it was trying to do something different as an Irish film. It actually had a good premise that was dramatic, that had visual potential. Um, and I think we need to support more mo Irish movies like that. Uh, we, yes. we both saw The Forest, <laughs> which did. had really pointless othering of Japanese people. It, it's Because right, uh, they're scary. Nat Natalie Dormer, Marjorie Tyrell in Game of Thrones, uh, uh, she, was, she goes to Japan to find mm -hmm. her sister who's gone missing in a forest, which is reputed to be the site of a lot of suicides. And when she gets there... Uh, She's in Tokyo, or maybe it was lots of second unit shots in Tokyo, and it just cuts to a close-up of her, but if she's in a bar or something, there are these Japanese uh, women just sort of giggling at her, and she kind of gives them, like, a sort of snotty look, and I'm just kind of like, like th this is weird othering for, like, Japanese people. I mean, like, it's kind of, they're, they're only Japanese, you know? You're not, like, it's it's kind of, the, the, a lot of horror movies do it where, like, even if it's just, like, the college kids go mm. out into the countryside and the rednecks look all weird and scary, it's just kind of is... Is is there a reason for horror movies to do this, or does it just add to the sense of unease the main characters it's, have? No, it is just literally the figure of the other. It's just you take these nice middle class Americans, or was she British in this movie? I can't remember now. American. Was she, yeah, she's American. You just put them in either like yeah, like the redneck woods at a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or um, Deliverance, where it's just crazy old rednecks. Or in this movie, you go to Japan and like I love how Tucker and Dale versus Evil kind of play on that. Uh, see that movie if you haven't seen it because it's a really good uh, piss take of horror movies. Yeah, it's it's, it's very funny. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, because that one it's the college kid, the middle class college kid. Mm. Really anyway, it doesn't matter. The forest, yeah, it was just it's. You go to Japan and oh, the schoolgirls are crazy and scary. But also, here's this old lady banging her head against the wall because old people are frightening. Yeah, no, there was one of the jump scares. It was literally like a two-minute build-up to uh, she thinks she sees something in a dark corridor in the hostel she's staying in, and yeah. then it turns out it's it's this uh, haggard, like uh, gray face, kind of yelling yeah. at her, and she screams. And then a nurse shows up and goes. Oh, sorry. She's very old. She walking at night again, and and you're just like, wait, that was the. She's just very old. That's that's why she looked scary. Mm -hmm. Oh God, that is such. A, like that's kind of. I mean, uh, so I mean, it, it's ageist in one sense. In another sense, they kind of it's it's about the the Japanese schoolgirls who live in the area, and the the thing about this forest. Um, apparently, this is a real 
far or it's a real thing that you're it, yeah. for Aokigari forest near Mount Fuji people go in there to commit suicide and apparently uh, the forest will play on your bad thoughts if you're sad it will trick you into killing yourself but it well, that just made me wonder it, what if somebody is like really upbeat and happy and they go to the forest like are they fine and just and, and apparently then there were there was a scene where school yeah. girls are walking through it giggling so they're just happy That's and they're just like would you not be would you not feel like a little bit sort of creeped out or maybe a bit more down if you know you're walking through a forest where lots of people kill themselves. But no, That's but like, why I kind of, the whole premise of it Japanese is culture, already, like, picking it apart. Like. But no, but Japanese culture has a much kind of heavier emphasis on supernatural. Like, ghosts and stuff play a much bigger role in just their culture, and I, I don't think it would be... It, it's more normalized, they're really supernatural and spiritualism, so that's, I, that wouldn't bug me. I do think this was an absolute pile of shit, and if it's not on my top worst at the end of the year, I'd be surprised. It was just such a boring movie. I liked two things about it. I forgot what the second one was. The first <laughs> one was like there was two shots that I quite liked where you don't see the monster properly. It's just it's a single mm. sh- like dolly shot. It's really nice. You see it, the monster behind her. It's fine. The other thing I liked, oh, what was it? There was something quite small. Also, oh yeah, I liked that they left. I don't you know. Is it worth mentioning the twist? It's not even a twist. It's 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 a really stupid care. twist. I'm not even sure if it's worth explain. I don't even know I'm how not to explain, explain it. it. Look, like, basically the idea is that you're meant to believe that her sister was maybe raped and killed by this dude who she befriended. Natalie Dormer 1 defends, befriends a dude to find Natalie Dormer 2. Yeah. It's implied that he may have raped and killed her or kept her in a cabin or something. And I like that they leave it ambiguous as to whether or not he did. Well, he didn't do it because you find the sister at the end. But she could have still been... He could have still been No, but then all the stuff... There's Then there's too many plot holes around that, that character. Like, it, 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 it makes so little sense yeah. what he was doing. Now, I mean, Shit. there were movies... There, there were moments in it... And I would have to show you screenshots, which we can't do it on audio podcasts, no, but it's not. like um, a river ends up uh, to be running in the opposite direction. Yeah. I thought it was uh, certain, the way certain shots were framed or the way... Like um, four of them tops. Certain, um, there's a steady cam shot where she's following a rope where it's a lot smoother than the rest mm. of the movie looks. That was good. There was, a, there was a moment where she thinks there are maggots crawling under her arm and it looks disgusting. So she's going to cut her wrist open to see. And then, but apparently that's what the forest does. It makes you tri- trick yourself into, trick you into hurting yourself, which is kind of funny. You could go a that's dark problem, comic yeah. roof and you can't really take it seriously. I certainly can't take any of the scenes seriously where she falls into the caves under the forest and there's a Japanese schoolgirl there who has this creepy look on her face. And even though it's supposed to be scary, does. even though it's supposed to be scary, just there are too many stereotypes about Japanese schoolgirls yeah. that you just, you're just laughing when you watch those scenes because she has this creepy look on her face. And it just, yeah, no, it doesn't execute its premise well. The acting isn't great. The writing isn't there great. There wasn't it's, a like, premise though. It's, it's, it was just a, such a basic woman trapped in an isolated area Malevolent forces, well, go. It's, it's crap. It was one of the worst, laziest horror in years. The credits were very nice. No, the credits were... They looked really good. No, but I thought the whole point about the credits was that they were they ran out of money and they were PS1 graphics. Like, especially yeah, the very cool, last though. the very last shot where they do a stupid jump scare and then awful, it's a credit. But they, it looked like real sort of like late 90s PlayStation level visual effects. But maybe the 90s graphics, the new 80s graphics. It look, I liked it. I, I looked kind of... Yeah, it looked a bit cheesy, but it was, it was nice. Uh, that They are the only positives. The graphics were okay near the end. There was four nice shots. That's it. Natalie Dormer wasn't very good. No. Uh, Japan looks cool, but again, it was mainly Romania. That doesn't make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> for Apparently, for budget reasons, a lot of movies are shot in Eastern Europe. A lot oh, of yeah. movies are... Yeah, well, just movies generally. I think Casino Real shot in Prague. But yeah, mm. anyway. Um, yeah, no, absolutely do not go see it. It is so bad. There's so many better harm. Even that, that trailer for The Conjuring 2 looked better than this movie did. <sighs> 
The Conjuring <laughs> 2, that trailer looks so bad. But Vera Farmiga's like, in it. A girl good. is like uh, 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 trapped on a ceiling and I, I just was thinking, let's have a tea party on the ceiling. All these crucifixes start turning upside down. It's all the, oh God. I actually, I don't know, I, I have something to say about that actually when we get into The Witch, but there was mm. one more horror movie you saw. Quickly, well, this, I didn't see it now. I didn't think it would get released, really, because it was on a, um, we mentioned it in our Halloween episode. It was on a horathon. It's called Goodnight Mummy. I had very high hopes for it. I don't think we reviewed it in here, did we? I don't think we no. did. But it's got... I it, hate the premise of it. It sounds like the most awful... Actually, Why would me, anyone watch something this bleak? What like, was the premise? Because I just saw the trailer for it. I didn't actually see like, the blurb. What, what, how is it described and marketed? The blurb is described as there are two young boys whose yep. mother has gone for surgery and it's some kind of facial reconstructive surgery. So the mother comes back and has bandages all over their face. So they have to kind of either look after her or leave her alone to rest. And I think the whole idea is they're not sure whether it is their mm. mother or not. It could be just some other woman who has some nefarious purposes. That sounds terrible. I do not want to watch a movie that dark. Like it's 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 like, you know. And I, and I think I did. I have a rant about this last the last episode when we were looking at the the Dublin Film Festival program. It's just there are so many movies like oh, the, yeah. like the, the 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 like Son of Saul, the movie that's getting lots of great reviews. It's two and a half hours set in a concentration camp, and it's all this like really dark moral stuff. Why would you watch this? It's it, like like who is going to like I, you know I, I just kind of and I'm not saying every movie has to be happy fun times. I'm I, but like I'm I'm just wondering how certain movies get financed, and this one was just like sounds like a super dark premise for horror. I'm not sure. I, I'm I I'm just probably too much of a scaredy cat to watch it. How well, did that, you find? That's it? the thing. The reason I was so eager to see it was because the trailer came out of nowhere and everyone everyone online was like oh my god this looks really good because the trailer sold it really well it looked like it could have been the next kind of it follows or babadook like a nice sort of out of nowhere horror from a sort of like australia with That's babadook or something we'll get to that um <laughs> it's uh, but i think the problem with goodnight mommy is the twist isn't that surprising now i know the twist that you're meant to think is coming is it's not their mother that's just some very heavy-handed misdirect. The real twist I had worked out by the end of the opening shot because it's very symbolically heavy. And I was like, is that? Oh. Um, but no, oh, I wasn't okay. sure of it, but I kind of got the idea of what might have been the twist, and that was the twist. It's not a bad twist. The problem is that I think the trailer uses shots that are from dream sequences, which make it look scarier than it is. There is definitely tension, because again, it's this big house in the middle of nowhere, this like big modernist house. With this, they're a very wealthy family. It's just the mother and the two kids. And it, it, a lot of it's kind of shot from like ground level sort of stuff from the kid's point of view, which makes it nice when it's this big, weird, towering figure with a weird like bandage face and flowy robes, bleeding eyes, kind of screaming at you. It That works kind of for like a PG-13 horror movie. It, the tension is definitely there for the first half. Once the twist gets revealed, which is about probably near the start of Act 3, I feel it's a stronger movie, but a far less watchable one because, boy howdy, will you be squirming. Like, I, I don't... I squirm easy enough at sort of certain things in movies. This one... Huh. I'm going to describe to you one thing, which I sense will have you just <sighs> wincing in terror. <clears throat> so, if you, have, if you have, like, dental floss, right? I, I use dental floss regularly. It's apparently good for your heart, Indeed. if not your gums. Mm, that's odd. I no, it's a link. It's like your the blood in your gums doesn't get infected, so your heart is healthier, actually. If you So, do use dental floss in spite of what you're about to hear. So, someone ends up torturing someone near the end. And they're strapped to a bed. Uh, okay, so the kids strap the mother to bed. They're torturing her because they don't believe it's their mother. They're just trying to get her to say, like, who you are, blah, blah, blah. So they're tied to a bed. And one of the things they do is they get dental floss, put it between, like, you know what you put it, like, between, let's say, behind your canine teeth and your bottom yep. jaw? Put it there. And then, like, 
cheese wire just great on the gums with all of your might. Is is there a nice close up of this? I think so. They also accidentally glue her eyes shut at one point and then use a scissors like gently to no no it's her mouth they glue shut and they're trying to like just cut open the glue and they they misjudge it a bit and then just snip and blood everywhere and it's ah it was hard to watch, fun to watch the crowd hard to watch worth watching. I think if it's ever if yeah if you're in a cinema I think it's worth seeing I enjoy seeing movies where people scream a lot so it's. Yeah, that's what. Is it's, it sort of is the sort of old kind of custom of getting together with five or six friends and mm-hmm. watching a horror movie at home some night? Is that dying down these days, or are people doing that as often, or do people I tend to just drink and chat to each down, other? When they yeah. meet up? Like the problem there is a uh, those kind of horror movies were more crowd. I think you can still do that with a, an Insidious or a Conjuring. Those kind of films. Uh, yeah. I don't think it works for these sort of pseudo art house ones. It's like, this will be a fun night. Let's watch uh, Goodnight Mommy. And, and yeah, all that always... horrible stuff happens. And... Well, no, no, that's fine. It's more just let's sit reading subtitles for an hour of uh, uh, two boys wandering around their house playing games and giving out to. And then the last half an hour, that'll be the fun bit when everyone's kind of going, oh, ooh, gross. This, this sounds... Um... It's a good seven out. Of 10. I, w- I won't use the word terrible. I will. I will say no, it's, not, it's not. It's not my thing. It is no, it so not the kind of movie I think should be made, or I or or, or at least would watch. Um, I think yeah, it's definitely one of those. It's more a psychological thriller than an outright horror. I think it was slightly mismarketed that way, but it's not bad. It's just not quite the the Babadook two we might have been hoping for. Mm. If you think you're not squeamish, I will say test yourself. Uh, watch this movie and tell me that the floss bit doesn't get. The floss bit has really got to me because gums are very sensitive. And if you're like grating on those things, like you're trying to cut through metal with a cheese wire, ho ho, ho ho, I think that's bloody. Enough. That's enough detail for now. Um, so finally, finally, a film which I think you might have maybe liked a bit, kinda, a little bit. I loved this movie. I loved, loved, loved The Witch. It's so good. This is really good. It's an excellent movie. It's not a very good horror movie. It's barely a horror movie, I think. There's definitely moments of tension sprinkled throughout it liberally. I think it's an incredibly accomplished period piece, production values-wise. So good in that aspect. Holy hell. Um, even down just to the dialogue. I, I saw that in a kind of a, quite a quite a local populist multiplex shall we say and i didn't notice much of a backlash against it apparently have you heard the reports from america i've, I've heard some stuff but what specifically are people saying about so, dialogue or well, the dialogue in this movie dialogue. because it's it's set Old in English, a puritan community yeah. in new england in the 1600s so i mean what surprised me going into it is that they are speaking in shakespearean mm. talk and like, like i mean the dad's like saying that i love the, the marvelous yeah. well Instead of I love you, I love thee marvelous well. And you're just like, oh, they're, they're actually, they've really kind of committed to the old style language. And you're not used to seeing that in a movie that isn't a direct adaptation yeah. of Shakespeare. So it's kind of, it's it's good that it kind of grounds it in that. Are Americans having a problem with this or? It's not just the dialogue. The problem is that, because this was in, was it in Sundance? Or yes. Or Sundance, yeah. And all the reviews came out going, oh, it's the best horror movie of the year. Scariest film of the year, blah, blah, blah. Well, so, it was for me, so... But, really? But we'll we'll second, the we'll yeah. uh, so quickly, so it, what the distributors thought was going to happen would be it would get a kind of small art house circuit release, simultaneous VOD, or like soon after VOD, and then it would just do the rounds on Netflix or whatever, which is, would have been fine. And it would have broken even or something. It would have been fine. Yeah, it only cost a like, million to make, I think, or five million? One million, One million yeah. yeah. 
but what happened was because of those reviews and because of the fact that horror as a genre is incredibly easy to market and incredibly easy to make a profit on look at the forest that pile of shit that's gonna make money somehow yep. they put it in like I think the widest least possible it was in 2000 screens it was in the same amount of screen as Deadpool I think yeah. and it came second to good. Deadpool no it is good I think it's good too the description I've heard of this, which I think is incredibly apt, is it's 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 the drive of horror movies. When Drive came out, it was marketed these trailers made really fast and furious at Ryan Gosling, and there was that one report that one woman that went to see it and thought that was a pile of arthouse wank. I want my ticket money back, and she's tried to sue the studio for this. <laughs> oh, for, yeah, I remember that. I mean, she wasn't wrong. They did like missell it. They totally missold it. This is the same problem where it's it's being marketed as the scariest film of the year, blah blah blah. But it is a, it's an arthouse movie. It is very much an arthouse movie with a sort of horror thematic bedrock. And they've turned against it. If you look at Twitter, there's so many reviews people think that was the worst film I've ever it's seen. Yeah, it was scary, boring, like... nothing happened. Ugh. But I mean, they're not wrong because they were expecting a, a conjuring. Like, I hate the conjuring. I really do. I haven't seen the conjuring. Sorry, I hate Insidious. It's boring, it's crap, it's not good. But that's what modern horror is now, sadly. And with sort of the good stuff a la Babadook, where it follows, is it regulated slightly kind of more off center stuff? You see, this is or... more. I thought The Witch was more akin to that kind of stuff because no. it's about building an eerie atmosphere rather than loads of jump scares. No, it is. I was there so are some glad. jump scares in this, but uh, I can't not like one, not, maybe not enough most. for a goat goring someone, a, a hand reaching on someone's head. Yeah. There, there were even simple ones that were very easy to shoot, but it was it's still with the music, which was the so music was good. Fantastic! It was so two thousand one esque. It was great. Um, it to me it felt it to me it. This seems like a really accomplished horror movie. I. I, I've heard the director been asked this question of is it really a horror movie mm. and how it's been described more as supernatural suspense drama. But if you're That's going to classify that as that, it's like Edgar Allan Poe didn't write horror then is, is what this Well, no, the said. movie itself labelled itself at the start. It's, an, it's a new English folktale. It, it's a folktale. That's what it is. And folktales can mm. be scary, but it isn't fundamental. I don't think horror is its main goal. Well, you see, the, the, the whole folktale aspect of it, I thought when you were mentioning America, you were talking about the religious response to it, which is apparently both Christians and Satanists uh, like Are this movie like, a lot. Yeah, which uh, is funny. Yeah, um, so, I mean, at least you can unite th those groups. Um, I, I also found... Um, can I quickly just say, have you had the words um, Black Billy stuck in your head over and over again? Black Philip. Black Philip, whatever, yeah, Black Philip. All I can hear when I'm just sitting at home, like, making tea or something, is this kid going, Black Philip, <laughs> Black Philip. <laughs> there is the line, would you like to live deliciously? And I was thinking, could I use that to chat up people? No, not enough people have seen The Witch for that to be, and it would be, it'd be creepy. creepy. Um, uh, you see, the actor who delivers that line, they they sell it. They, they but um, I mean, I mean, and, and the acting was all great in it. There were two. The, the parents were Game of Thrones actors. Uh, not Ella Fanning was the main girl in the trailer. Who's mother in Game of Thrones? Kate Dickey, who. While breastfeeding a raven in this movie, she also breastfed a child in Game of Thrones. She's getting a bit typecast as this. She she was she lived in the uh, oh, palace the with the big lady. hole. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and and the dad was. I knew he was Game of Thrones. Yeah. But spare the iron price, and he's like a really deep voice. That that that's kind of the, the setting. What I found out about the director Robert Eggers, he's kind of come out of nowhere, but he's worked as a production designer mm. before. That makes total sense because this movie is so well designed in terms of what it was setting out to do, what it was trying to be. To me, it's a really good horror movie. There were two things you said there. One was that it's that it's not a horror movie, and that there there, there are moments of tension, but it's not. And so, I, like, I, I have two questions. One is that by moments of tension, do you mean jump scares? And two, um, no. if it's not a horror movie, then uh, why isn't it? It, it, it? Like, do you mean it's it's not a horror movie compared to recent horror movies, or just this isn't really? 
horror. I, I just suppose if you could get a bit more into that, because well, I mean, I'm not as into horror movies yeah. as you are. But I, to me, this is like, if if you can recommend horror movies that are better than this, I will. I want to. I'm excited to see a movie that can top this. I, well, I, I mean, like, this. if I was to give you a list of better horror movies, it'd be very obvious stuff. It'd be you know, it'd be Psycho, it'd be The Shining, it'd be Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs, Seven. No, Seven's on horror. Seven psychological thriller. Uh, it, it'd be. I find this scarier Exorcist, than all of those. But well, that's fine. Yeah. But that doesn't. It's. It's, it's okay. There's horror. something so eerie about this movie. It really gets in your head. It, but I still think the folktale thing. I'm actually I'm happy the film labeled itself that way because I would have been looking for that word if I hadn't thought of it. If it hadn't said it to me. Because look, the way I define horror, not define horror. The reason this isn't horror for me is because I don't think horror is the main focus. Something like again, come back to Babadook. Babadook is about horror. It is about trying to freak you out. This movie, there's ten, there's there's a mood. There's a really well cra- crafted mood. Which I love. Like the opening ten minutes, I was just like completely in love with it, and then I was like, "Oh, okay, I see mm. what they're going with this now." Because it also wrong foots you right at the start. Because it, it, actually, this is the point I get into in a minute. It shows the witch right at the beginning, which I thought, "Oh, it's getting like right into it, like right from the echo, excellent." And then it's like, "Oh no, there's like an hour of just family drama, and then back to the stuff at the end." Mm. The other it's thing, foreboding, is, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and it was that, like that sequence was really creepy and really weird and just so strange. What I loved about it is because when when I when I saw it on opening day people were chatting to each other in movies and I've mm. been at screenings where those people keep chatting and they'll just keep ignoring the movie because it can't hold your attention. The Witch is what I like to call a shut up and pay attention movie. That when it starts, the audience stops talking because they can't not pay attention to what's happening on the screen because it's so well made. Like, so like, um, those are the best kind of movies, shut up and pay attention movies. And well, I felt some resistance to it in the first, I'd say 20 minutes when people kind of grasped that, oh dear God, they actually are going to talk, talk like this for the entire <laughs> film, aren't they? But the, the actors do it so well. I, yeah, I keep, I keep calling I, I her. I think it settles down after a while, but initially, I think it is quite jarring just seeing that happen. The main actress, I call her not Ella Fanning because when I saw the trailers, I thought it was Ella Fanning. So did I, yeah. It's Anya Taylor Joy, I think her name is, and but she's American. She's like Argentinian American, mm. but like in this movie, they all have the regional Northern English accents and the Shakespearean language. And um, there, I mean, so there, there's that there's the design of it there's the music um i did love the music oh it, it, it was and and i think for for me what what worked for me because we were talking about the whole religious belief aspect something that annoys me about horror f- films especially the ones about exorcisms like the exorcist or the conjuring or the okay you know but like the trailer for the conjuring too which looks ridiculous and the way it's still going with the angle like based on the true case files it's yeah. based on the true story the thing that bothers me about exorcisms is that exorcisms are such bullshit. I, I, and I really hate the movies that kind of go, but this really happened. And oh, oh, your rational mind doesn't think it did. But they, how can you explain all this? It really happened. And she's like, no, you ugh, feck off. The witch does a thing where it doesn't, because it's the, the whole sort of folktale movie mm. period. It like, it doesn't waste the audience's time trying to say like this actually happened or th- or this is a thing that could happen. It's just like this is the this is the world these Until characters the live in. This is the world these characters live in. This is the story they're going through. You're experiencing. You're freaked out during possession scenes as the characters are, and you're not sort of being. And that's because it's presented. It has the confidence to just present itself as a story, a very well told story, and um. And like even even with the revelations at the end, I liked that because I thought that was a that was a good wrapping up of the theme oh, no. of the movie explored and everything. I love the end. I just I... thought this is a better this is an ex- ex- execution of an exorcism movie that I prefer, where it's just about the emotional experience. It's not trying to get into the intellectual thing 
of like this can actually happen. It's just it's just a, like a real ride for the audience. Oh no, I love the ending. What I meant was that bit at the end, the title card that kind of goes, "This is based on real accounts and taken from actual court journals of witch trials." Blah blah. blah. I was like that wasn't necessary. I didn't need that. You see, I thought they were they were doing that more for to explain why the dialogue was that way. That apparently a lot of the dialogue was based on real dialogue from actual accounts, and I kind of thought, "Oh, that was kind of cool." And I think I can forgive that because people were more superstitious back then. Whereas if you're in the 1970s, if you're living in the modern era. Like, um, like you've no excuse to be that stupid to believe in exorcisms. Like, but one thing I did find weird about the witch, and I know a few reviews and horror people have taken against it for this reason, uh, is that, well, for one thing, it shows you the witch right from the beginning, which I sort of liked, but also immediately went, oh, because usually with, especially Salem or witch trial movies generally, not witch trials, witch movies, it's always very much a subtext thing, or not a subtext thing. It's always very much a, a metaphorical thing, and that the witches. It's, it's like the ghost in the shining like are they there or are they just kind of symbolic and i did think it was weird this movie immediately goes no there's actually a witch there she is and then just keeps going with that right to the end and then kind of goes further and it's like oh that's kind of cool it's good but i still felt a weird felt a weird tension i think mark remote said this and i thought about it before i heard him say it but i totally agree with the way he put it after i heard it was that even though you're shown that supernatural exists in this universe you still find your mind trying to go, oh, but they're just hallucinating. Did you find that? I kept thinking like this is because really it's the family drama thing, and it's because it's it's kind of like the the not Ella Fanning bullies her little sister because her little sister is just being annoying. So she says to her, "Oh yeah, I'm really the witch, and I'm gonna cook you if you well, don't go." That, yeah, run away, and then later, you know, later on, I mean, it's yeah. quite sort of, it's quite in a way, it's like. It's kind of basic storytelling, but it's simple in a brilliant way where you know that later on then the kids are going to say, she's actually a witch, she told us. And you're just like, no, I was just trying to fuck with them. I was just like, uh, and and then there's all this tension between them. I can kind of think, I think it's kind of... That's not what I meant, but you finish your point and I'll say what I meant. <laughs> well, what, what did you mean? Go on. What I meant was that um, even though you're being shown the witch, I don't think you have to believe she's there because they all think, that they've been uh, cursed because yeah. they left the try, whatever. So, and also when the kid goes missing at the start, that's obviously her going, "Oh, I didn't lose a kid. A wolf took it, or a witch took it, or something." And then that's, but also then the fact that when the son sees the witch, he sees the beautiful Ava Green-like witch that looked so much like Ava Green. I was like, "Is that Ava Green?" It wasn't him. Uh, and then even the very end, but I don't think we should spoil. She goes to sleep first and wakes up and sees all that. Yeah, I think so um, I think there's enough. There could be a reading yes, of it where I it is hallucinations, yeah, I think like so. Which again is is nice for a, a secular rationalist audience because then it, it can just be about oh no these are people who went crazy but it's still a hell of a ride and it's um so he so it I, a ride. I, I, think I don't think like... it's that exciting I don't look, I did really love this but I think it's incredibly low key very arty movie the I... increasing dread the kind of the, the the ending of how I mean to to me it's a happy ending but like like as I've said I hate religion and like I I find the Puritans that they only came to America it w- Americans are told in schools because they were fleeing religious persecution it was because they couldn't practice religious persecution they wanted to set up like a society where things would be done properly mm. and there's this whole new continent where dark-skinned people live but they don't matter so we can just go there and uh, make this uh, heaven on earth and, so there was uh, one shot of Native Americans which I kind of liked which you I s- liked that yeah you see them entering the town as the family are leaving kind of going these, this is how much of outcasts these people are that even the Native Americans are like rank higher than them but what I was going to say was um, I think the ending is happy ending too not for that reason there's obviously, undeniably, a sort of, to keep with the theme of the podcast... It's an emotional thing as well. It's no, no just, not that. You know, but... there's, there's a feminist kind of undercurrent. Yeah. And if you take... The problem is, though, that ending actually is quite problematic if you look at it that way, because that ending 
is a very much an empowering sort of you know liberated woman kind of thing but think about how she gets that liberation yes and th- that makes the whole reading really problematic i think mm. in an interesting kind of way but it, it's still yeah the ending is definitely meant to be sort of very feministy and it's kind of cool in that sense but i do think the how you get there makes it problematic but it's i still okay there's one as a film this is a 9.5 out of 10 as a horror movie it's a seven it's a great movie. There's the, the one thing that occurred to me about the hallucination is that the, the shot in the trailer, like even just the way they could they could market it. Mm-hmm. The, the the scene in the trailer is when she's playing peekaboo with the baby brother, and then she opens her eyes and the and the and the baby has disappeared. That's that's the one bit where I'm kind of like, that is pretty supernatural. How could that happen? And it's it's about just even the way they had that scene that could be used in the trailer, so mm. people watching will go, oh here, what's going on here? And then it's kind of like. So it has that thing which, it, that, like, the, the thing I love most in movies is when something is simple but brilliant. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what this movie did. It was, it was, uh, it, it just, it knew what it was going for. Uh, it was so aesthetically accomplished and it, it, it kind of came out of nowhere, this filmmaker. So I'm wondering what, Ed, so I, I want to know what he's doing next. Turns out he wants to remake Nosferatu, the 22 silent film first adaptation of Dracula I'm kind of like which is similar to this in that it's kind of dull and very slow but it has a nice kind of atmosphere and mood to it and that's, but that, that movie makes... is so of its time so how can you remake something like like that because they're, they're not just going to do a silent film again but he's just kind of like well why bother going to that angle with it why not just adapt Dracula again or do your own take on it it's kind of I, I, I want to see more from this director though mm. I was I was really blown away by this I was surprised by how much I, I loved it but do you see why it's being taken against by modern or by not uh, by Be- because it's marketed um, as a horror movie when it isn't it it, it isn't but no it's I, the fact that you can use phrases like uh, aesthetically accomplished and that kind of thing like that's not what but see, again I'm differentiating between populist horror which is anything by mm. James Wan and then actual horror you see it follows is kind of in between isn't it because that is aesthetically yes. accomplished while it's also being very similar to a lot of the popular horror movies exactly. and it was a big hit last year but it's also kind of the arty subtext of the whole. Um, STI thing or the rape yeah. analogies and like that. That's I mean. That's a good like line straddler in that it's it it works as an actual horror movie. I hate saying that actual horror movie. It works as a sort of mainstream massive air quotes horror movie, but also kind of appealing to the arty crowd. Whereas the witch, I think, skews very heavily towards the arty crowd, which isn't the problem. I don't think it's just I feel people are mislabeling it, and I think the marketing was very misleading. It's a very very good movie. I'm so glad. I want to see it again. I really do. Yeah. I don't think it ranks that highly on the horror scale. Like, it wasn't even that scary. The opening 10 minutes were great. I think the first witch appearance was really well done. By the end, I just thought it was cool. Like, when when the whole Black Phillip thing gets fully I thought it was out. so cool. It was so cool, but it wasn't scary. I, I think we've made our point clear that Ooh, you know, wait, this wait, is wait, a wait. good film. I have a film uh, to recommend to you. More. Yeah, Based is this on because, the of the, is this the because I'm, I'm still convinced it is a horror movie? Now, even though it may not be kind of as much of a horror movie as other like i'm still not seeing how you can't classify this as a horror movie i'm not saying it's not a horror movie i just don't think it's it's fully a horror i think horror is its main focus i think horror I'm is happy to classify it as horror but i mean That's is fine. there is there a recommendation you have uh, in terms of in relation to this yes the film actually i would class it or rank it beside is kill list have you seen ben wheatley's kill list I, I really like Ben Wheatley's A Field in England which is a similar to this Ish, um, yes <clears throat> i've been meaning to uh 
I've meaning to catch up on his movies because High Rise is coming out soon, mm. and I do like Ben Wheatley. We we had an episode recently where Paul Farron interviewed Ben Wheatley, and it was a great talk. I could I could hear him talk about filmmaking for hours because he's just he's so unpretentious the way he talks about filmmaking. He's very practical, mm. and I I kind of I, I do like his work. I have yet to see Kill List though. Okay. but you're recommending I watch that then for next time. It's the film I felt the most similar to watching The Witch. I as soon as I left The Witch, I kept thinking of Kill List because I think Kill List is a really good horror movie but again it's not really a horror movie it's actually sort of more of a drama that has these pseudo horror elements and much like kill or sorry much like the witch it sort of deals with this weird very english kind of folklore elements it's actually basically an update of wicker man in many ways but with less weird nudity and sex rights but uh, i think that's the closest comparison that it's a very well accomplished sort of drama with horror undercurrents but it's not necessarily a straight horror but I think both films have these crescendos of horror in them. But neither film sustains a horrifying... But the, both of them do really good mood pieces. It's I'm getting very muddled. See, but, no, but that's that's odd because the uh, my, I thought of A Field in England as a comparison, which is another Ben Wheatley film. I find that so. scary, though. I, that, that's, that's not another, scary, that's but not in, terms of, either, in yeah. terms of the setting and tone, it does similar things to this movie. That it's occurred set, to me initially, set in the yes. same, yeah, Possibly the same decade. Of. It's definitely set in the same half century as this and uh, touches on similar themes. So, I mean... Yeah, no, I, I'm, uh, the, which will definitely be in my best uh, films list last year. I'd say so, uh, unless, yeah. unless um, I'm luck fortunate enough that there are there are films that can top this, but I think this will be a hard film to top going forward in this year. Seeing this remind me of Ex Machina last year, where it's like that was a really well made film. I'm glad I saw that. Looking forward to seeing that again, kind of thing. Like, I, I, yeah, it'll be on the top ten at the end of the year. The forest to be on top worst. <laughs> and this will be in top 10 <laughs> oh we had a bad horror film a good horror film um, <clears throat> watch them for comparison films. I suppose or don't no don't watch the forest but uh, I think it's just the money. idea that with uh, horror-esque films you know mm-hmm. it's it, the execution of them matters so much it sounds like an obvious thing to say but you just think of everyone getting together to make a movie and it's just some filmmakers and producers they've just thought it through better actually aside else. from The Witch then would you have a single recommendation for uh, this week out of week this episode out of our, our list of reviewed films. The Witch. No, aside from The Witch. Aside from The Witch? Yeah. Because you're going to say that, obviously. See, Traders, it's an Irish movie that uh, tries to do something different. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't say if it succeeds or not, but it tries. <laughs> it it kind of succeeds, okay. but it could have been better. See okay. what I mean? The Witch, on the other hand, I consider unassailable. That's you why I was saying, don't aside from this The opportunity. Witch. See The Witch, but aside from The Witch, what else would you recommend? See Traders. Okay. There we go. Was that so hard? So go see The Witch. Goodbye. Goodbye. We end with a recommendation for an Irish film, this being the 20th episode of the Film Ireland podcast. Thank you for listening. But more than that, see the witch.